In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome back once again to the true life podcast it's a beautiful morning the birds are singing the sun is shining and we are here with the one and only norman bacall who's written a fantastic book called take charge i think it's important to point out some things about norman not only is he a great man but he's an author a speaker a consultant an entertainment attorney and much more i was thinking norman because this is the interview and you have a chapter in your book called the interview might it be okay for you to do both the before and after interviews that you do in your book? <laughs> uh, first of all, thanks for having me, George. And the book, well, it, you know, from an interview perspective, I'm used to being on both sides of the table, though mostly <laughs> I, I was the interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, I would like to, I'd like to say it's strange for me to be on the other side of the table, but I've been doing enough podcasts to, to get the hang of it, and uh, and ultimately, and uh, this is the the point I make in the book is it's all about storytelling. It is more than anything else. Yeah, it's a fascinating way to to get to learn about people, and I like the point that you make in the book about storytelling. It's something that's been in our history forever. If you look at the, you know, the Homeric verses, or if your parents read to you when you were little, this this idea of the story is something that really makes people attached to you and really gets people to understand who you are. So is there a story about how you began to write this book or what inspired this book? Well, what inspired this book was um, actually, it was the aftermath of a complete business collapse. In fact, a complete collapse of my life. Uh, I had, uh, I, I began my career as a young lawyer in Montreal. I moved to Toronto in 1989 and I spent my professional career doing all kinds of things I never could have imagined. So I thought I was going to be a tax lawyer, but I never thought I'd end up uh, working on the creative side of the film industry. Uh, although I, I was this, the sane uh, right. advisor to all these crazy people, most in film, because I think you have to be out of your mind to be a film producer in the first place, because it's such a crazy <laughs> business. And the, the, the chances that what you're going to produce are, is actually going to be seen by anyone is, uh, is, is pretty small, but that's where, that's where my lot landed. And one thing grew to another. So I started in a very small Canadian industry and then slowly after a period of time, I moved to Toronto and got new clients there. And then lo and behold, 25 years later, I was representing major Hollywood studios for a lot of their production work in Canada and even found my way onto the board of Lionsgate and was sitting in the boardroom uh, on the day that the decision was made to produce the Hunger Games. Wow. And we weren't, you know, we weren't sure whether it was gonna be hit or not, like, because nobody knows. So, uh, so it, it's, in fact, I was telling the story last night, I, I mentor 
a group of young professionals in Toronto. And I was telling the story last night how who could have imagined that I would be standing on the red carpet at the premiere of the Hunger Games, like not this far, like inches away from Jennifer Lawrence. And she turns around, she's wearing this red dress and she turns around and she says, Norm, what are you doing here? Uh, and then I looked at the, I looked at the lawyers and I, uh, the professionals in the room. I said, no, that, that never happened. Uh, yes, we were this far apart, but she had no idea who I was. I was just like one of the suits. So, but, but it was close. It was close. Yeah. Uh, so, so I've done a whole bunch of things in my career. I never could have imagined. And I don't even remember how we, how I got on this route in the first place, but I'm, but I'm having such a good time telling the stories. Uh, I, I ended up, oh, that's right. How did I come to write the book? So I ran a law firm for 25 years. I built it again, something I would have told you, uh, even in my late thirties, I'm never going to do this. And, uh, but when I turned 40, my predecessor who was, uh, who was running uh, the law firm where I was working, uh, discovered he had terminal cancer and they kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you do it? And I said to myself, I don't know how, uh, but I learned. Uh, so we built this fantastic organization. We had two prime ministers working for us. It was, as I said, I felt like some, somebody was smiling down on me. Uh, a year after I left uh, my leadership position, my term was up. I went back to being sort of an ordinary partner in the law firm. And within 14 months, the law firm collapsed. It was uh, the, the Canadian press reported it as the, uh, the greatest failure in Canadian law firm history. And, you know, we even became a, a business case model for Harvard Business School. That's how famous it was. And uh, I was crushed. And it was my wife who came up to me about five months later and said, she said, listen, you're a very angry person. And I, I suppose that made some sense because what I'd spent 25 years in, in, in building was gone. And she said, she handed me one of these kind of notebooks. Uh, this, this one, it was a gift from my grandchildren. This one says my, fir my first draft of my amazing novel, uh, but that one said nothing. And she said, why don't you just start processing? So I just began writing. And again, writing a book was something I swore I was never gonna do in my life. And I didn't sit down to write a book. I actually was just kind of figured, you know, I'll, I'll just start writing my stories. I wrote, I started with, what the last night at the law firm felt like, like, like the hollowness. And I, I felt like the captain going down with the ship. So I was the last one there. It was empty. It was uh, a, a dark night. It happened to be Valentine's Day. Mm. And I was looking out over Lake Ontario, but the, the place was completely bleak. So I wrote what that felt like. And then I said, okay, now what? So I decided, you know what? I'm just going to start writing down my stories from as far back as I can remember them. And by the time I was finished, I had 750 pages written longhand. I had an abscess on my writing finger on my left hand, and I knew it was time to stop. Uh, so I, I did an edit. I sent it, so I, I, and I sent a couple of sample chapters down to uh, one of my clients who was a film producer in LA, and he actually sent back some script notes. And uh, then I sent a uh, a, a few sample pages to an agent, a book agent who I knew in Toronto. And he said, uh, he said, how many, how long is it? He said, cause it's a story that from a Canadian perspective, everybody wants to know about. Um, so I said, well, it's 750 pages. He said, Norm, nobody is that interested in your life. Call me back when it's under 300 pages, which, uh, which eventually I did. But what happened was slowly, but surely, uh, you know, I transformed. So it became a, a book about, you know, part one was a case study on uh, how I went from being a student to a successful attorney. And part two of the book was, uh, at least from my perspective, how you build an organization and not just a law firm, but any organization, what goes into it and what are the things you need to think about. And part three was um, intended to show just how fragile most organizations are and the things that can drive them apart so easily. And uh, it was published, it became a Canadian bestseller very quickly. And then I spent five years lecturing, uh, a lot of it on university campuses. And I'd, I'd go to the, uh, I'd show up at the universities and, and, and in front of the, at the auditorium in the front, and I'd see all these, and I'll call, put them kids, because I'm getting to be, to be an old guy now. 
but I'm seeing all these kids and, and I get up there and my gut instinct reaction was, uh, and this is how I started every speech. I used to be you. How did I get to be me? And that would be the theme of my, my campus speeches. And after I've give, given that speech for about four years, I said, you know what? I think there's a book in this. So I decided to pretty much write down, uh, you know, some of the key lessons I learned that took me from university to, uh, to partnership in a professional firm. And, and it was, it was, uh, and they were only the lessons that nobody teaches. So you come out of university, and of course, you don't know anything about what's going on in the world, you get into the world. There's re unless you're lucky, there's nobody to show you the ropes. So I said, okay, here's a, this is going to be a show you the ropes book of how you go from uh, know nothing student to successful professional. And that's, that's what got me going. And that I felt was my, a part of my give back to, uh, uh, to profession in a business world that were so gracious to me. So yeah, a very long answer to a, to a pretty short question, actually. <laughs> well, it's a great answer. And there's a lot in there that I, I think is worthy of talking about just to begin us off. It, it's I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and myths. And it seems to me like you were presented with your own hero's journey. And, you know, when you look at great movies, whether it's The Hunger Games or whether it's Avatar or, you know, Ben-Hur, whatever movie you want to look at that follows this idea of the hero's journey, they all start off with this massive tragedy. And in some ways, in some cultures, you don't get to become a leader or you don't even get to become a man until you've gone through a tragedy and figured out why this happened to you. But more than that, what are you going to do about it? I really admire that the frankness and the ability to share what happened with you because it does seem devastating. When you lose everything around you, you really begin to understand what you're made of. And not until then can you come out the other side. And so I, on top of that, I think it's fascinating that in the world of academics today, there's a whole lot of teaching, but there's not a whole lot of experience. And it seems that this tragedy gave you the experience to become a teacher or mentor to other people like that. And so I'm thankful for that. Thank you for doing that. Uh, well, you're very welcome. But uh, it's funny when you're, when you're going through it, the last thing you want is when people pat you on the back and give you those, what I call funeral eyes. Uh, <laughs> Or, 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 or we know you're in mourning, so we're, we're going to go easy on you and say, uh, you know, you'll come out stronger as a result. Now, all you're thinking is, you know, go sod off. You go through this. <laughs> <laughs> and right? It takes a few years to get your to get your perspective and to learn to learn the lessons uh, that you're going to learn. But I think the other thing that I found really helpful in terms of uh, the mentoring I'm doing now uh, is that I'm able uh, to look at these young people from the perspective of what I call not retirement, but actually rewirements. Mm. And I tell them, listen, I, I was a very successful lawyer. I gave it all up. Like I completely walked away from it because it wasn't fun anymore. And I decided to try something completely different. So in a lot of respects, I'm going through right now in my next career, what you're going through the first time. So don't think this is me talking down to you as somebody who's been there, who's done that and has this wonderful wisdom to share with you. Uh, instead, look at me as somebody who's going through the exact same things you're going through. Like I face rejection every, you know, pretty much once, once a day. I, like I, I, I went so far as, you know, for fun, I wrote, um, I wrote a screenplay. I've, I've now published four books. My fifth one is just about to come up. I decided, you know what? I am going to write a screenplay. And I sent it down to some of my contacts in Hollywood and got some very polite rejections. <laughs> and uh, polite because, you know, they had to be nice to me. Right. Well, they actually, they didn't have to, but, <laughs> but they know me enough to be nice to me. But, I, but I, I was thinking for all the book rejections I've had over the last five or six years, you, you I mean, the one, of, one of the things that like the key lesson you have to learn is you're going to face, all, you know, if you want to be successful, you're going to face an awful lot of rejection along the way. You never know when it's going to come, but if you don't go through it, you can't get better and you're not going to learn. And, mm -hmm. and I'm not telling them this from the perspective of somebody who had this great run uh, and made a few mistakes along the way, but on, on balance succeeded far more often than I failed. I'm, I'm, I'm now talking as somebody who's going through it again, 
and is living through it every single day and recognizing, you know, when I post something up on social media, nobody looks at it uh, and I want to go cry in the corner. It, you know, it's a good remind. It, it's, it's a good humbling reminder, uh, you know, that you're not as good as your press clippings. Thank God. Thank God. You're, <laughs> you know, there's somebody there to remind you that every day, but it also, you know, that's what inspires me to make me better. And I think, uh, when, when you look at the people who really achieve success, it's not because, uh, they're smarter. It's simply because they wouldn't give up. Yeah. Tenacity, the ability to hear no, but in your mind realize they really mean yes. You just have to help them figure it out. <laughs> or they mean, or they do mean no, but the, but the, you know, you just need to find somebody else who will say it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, like I, I really love understanding how people's minds work and when you went through a period where you were, where your wife had said you're an angry guy. Sometimes I use anger to fuel my day. And I find it's difficult because it becomes destructive in the end, but it's a heck of a fuel sometimes. And it can really get you going in a direction to push through your comfort zone, to push through areas. When you were an attorney, did you use some of these similar emotions that you felt after the crash? Did you Have you used those to success prior to the crash? I'd say... Uh... I rarely feel anger, mm. rarely. For me, it's, uh, uh, I mean, the, the other thing I know about me is I can be fairly stubborn uh, <laughs> if I have an idea in my head. And uh, I translate stubborn really nicely in Take Charge. I call it single-minded determination, something mm. I learned actually practicing karate. And it's, it's about being determined to accomplish something and not giving up till you do it. And if you can do that, and that's, the, which in the end is how I built an organization. I can tell you there were a lot of days building that law firm when I there, there was a little voice in the back of my head saying, there's no way this is going to succeed. In fact, when I opened the doors in Toronto, uh, we had a few consultants who came to us and said, this is this, they didn't say, they didn't use these words, but this is what they meant. This is the stupidest idea that anybody else has, has anybody's come up. You, you think you're going to open a storefront of four lawyers in Toronto as an outshoot of a Montreal law firm and turn it and think you're going to compete with the major law firms in the country. The, the only thing that they, that we're missing were you've got to be out of your mind. <laughs> Those were implied, and, right? <laughs> and, and, and my philosophy was, I, I don't care what you think. I'm, I'm just doing this. And there were a lot of days and a lot of nights and a number of partners who came to me and said, ready to give up yet? I mean, they didn't use those words, right. uh, but that's kind of what they were saying. Like, you know, this experiment just is, you know, there were lots of days, this experiment is just not succeeding. Uh, and I said to myself, this is my experiment. Uh, we're building, I had an image when I, when I arrived in Toronto, I had this image of the kind of workplace I wanted to create. And it was a workplace where uh, everybody felt the way I felt, which was very excited to come to work in the morning. And that was really the only thing I asked people for. I, I need you to be excited. I'm going to push you to your limits. I'm going to ask you to do things you've never done or that you don't think you can do, but I think you can do them. And, uh, and we'll meet and we'll talk about it. But absolute prime requirement is you've got to be excited to come into work. And if you're not, stop coming, go somewhere else. And in fact, even when I was doing recruiting, I would tell people, Listen, understand, understand one thing. If you want to earn the most possible money on the street, don't come here. I said, go to a, go to a firm that pays the most amount of money. Uh, and what you'll see, though, is everybody around there is unhappy, mm. but they're earning, they're earning the maximum possible art. If that's what you want, this is not the place for you. So I'm imposing kind of, kind of what I call my tax. Uh, it, it was, uh, we, we called it the Heenan tax because that was the name of the firm, but the reality was it was a happiness tax. So we're all going to take a little less. We're going to be a little less greedy because what we're after is uh, a quality of experience you're never going to see anywhere else. I said, and that's my prom A, that's my promise to you. And my second promise to you is you had this image or illusion of what your business life was going to be when you left school. I, and I'm going to let you do it however you see fit. Like whatever it is that's going to make you happy, go do it. You have complete, I'll give you all the rope you need and all the support you need uh, to build it out that way. And that's the kind of firm we built. So it was unique. And 
it's funny because, and you may ask, well, why would a firm like that collapse? But we can get that later. But, uh, but so obviously those are the, all the lessons I try to build into take charge. And I'm, I'm writing the sequel. I'm just, I've just finished the sequel right now. It's called never stop, uh, how to advance your career. And it's sort of a, a more, it, it's take charge on steroids, I'd say, just in terms of, uh, of the advanced skills you need to, to just ratchet it up one more level. But it starts with, um, and I talk about it in take charge. It, it, it starts with finding your fit, hmm. you know, with the person you are and the place you're working need to be compatible. And so many people are so unhappy out there and the root of their unhappiness is they're working at the wrong place. They know intrinsically they don't fit. And that's not to say that my philosophy of how to run a business is right or wrong. It was just mine. And it attracted people who believed the same way. But every every once in a while, we'd hire someone who didn't believe it. They they, they thought they they thought they did, but that's not the people they were. They were these unhappy, miserable people, or they felt they were being undervalued, or or the, for a whole host of reasons, they realized like within a, within a few months of arriving uh, that they didn't fit in in our firm. And you know, those are the people. You know, the, nobody wants to go to lunch with, nobody pays much attention to, they become more unhappy and they leave. And that's actually a good thing. So, you know, that, that's why the best workplace environments are ones where not where everybody is the same, but where people are different, they bring different talents, but their, their core values are all the same. So you see a lot of that in my, my first book's called Breakdown. And in Breakdown, I really focus on uh, uh, cultural values. Uh, and you, you talked about myths before in storytelling. And I learned from, uh, Yuval, Yuval Harari, who's the, uh, the Israeli historian who writes a lot about this. He wrote, uh, a lot of people don't know his name, but they all know his book, uh, Homo Sapiens. Sapiens. Yeah. So I read Sapiens and I said, Oh my God, like, this is like, this is like prehistoric. Like the <laughs> tribe needs the mythology. And our mythology was, you can be really happy by earning a little less money. Like if I went out on the street and said that, you know, people would look, look at me like I was insane, but everybody that came to work with me believed it, like believed it to the death. And, uh, uh, so it was, you know, it was just one of those, it's kind of like, uh, uh, and I love again, it's, it's, this isn't my idea. It was, it was Harari's who said, you go right to the American constitution, you know, that all men are created equal and which is patently false. It's a noble lie. It, yeah. It's a, all men are, all men are not created equal. We're all created different. <laughs> yes. some, <laughs> some are smarter, some are just smart, some are more beautiful. Right. You know, it, it, it's right across, but for constitutional purposes, all men are created equal. And presumably that includes uh, women and everybody else these days. Uh, but, um, but those are, those are the mythologies that everybody in the society, whether it's a, whether it's an office or an entire country need to buy into, uh, to achieve your, your balance and your harmony. You know, I, I wonder if maybe this idea of all men are created equal is the very foundation on which we have so much pain in our lives. Like everybody thinks they should make the same amount of money. Everybody thinks they should be the best. It's because they're <laughs> supposed to be equal. If, if the foundation was, hey, we're not equal. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are smarter, some are dumber. That would make things a little bit, you, you would think that if people were grown up on that myth, you know, that they would begin to understand where they fit in. But I love the idea that you have found a way to bring people into an environment in which they fit because you're right. I, I work in an institution and I'm willing to bet everybody has spent some time in a place with someone that didn't want to be there. And that person's miserable and they make everyone miserable and they're a liability to the company. How, how did you get there? Like, is this, is that something as coming up as a young man that you found working in different places or did you learn that from your family or where did that come from? I actually learned it when I joined the law. Uh, I joined a very small law firm. There were, I think, 20 lawyers in Montreal. It was a small regional office. Um, and uh, it's funny because in Take Charge, I write all about uh, interview skills. And one of the reasons I write about interview skills was because 
I was the guy nobody wanted to hire after the interview process. I, I interviewed so badly. It was, it was, uh, yeah, I was, and I told this story last night to, to my mentor group. I said, you know, you know, when you're sitting um, at an event at a dinner table and it's like there are eight people and there's a person sitting on your left and there's a person sitting on your right. And one of those people you, you, you strike up a conversation with and you know, 90 seconds in, you need to escape this conversation. <laughs> so you turn the other way and yeah. you never turn back. All right. Well, I was that guy. All right. The beginning of my career, I was that guy you didn't want to be sitting beside because like 60 seconds into it, like I had nothing left to say. And I, you know, I'd be thinking to myself, okay, like, what do I do next? And I just sit there quietly until the, until the person like oriented the other direction. And, you know, I'd get up and walk around the room so that I would, you know, to avoid the embarrassment. And, uh, and again, it was my wife who taught me because so, she was the best interviewer, uh, interviewer of all time. So she, she taught me the tricks about interviewing. She taught me the tricks about surviving those kind of uh, uh, awkward situations. Of course, I put them all in to take charge uh, in terms of like, and, and they're pretty simple secrets like, uh, you know, be George, be the interview. Like when you're, <laughs> when you're sitting down with someone and uh, you're in one of these awkward situations, forget about you. And this gets back to our hero hero stuff, you, you know, you may be the hero of your life, but you're not the hero of anybody else's life. They couldn't care less about you. Uh, so what you need to tap into is uh, the fact that the most important people in their life is them. And so if you spend half an hour, uh, not half an hour, but if you take the first two minutes and ask them questions about themselves, listen to the answers and every answer will feed you another question. You can keep them going all night because there's nothing anybody likes talking about more than themselves, uh, other than the few exceptions like me. <laughs> and, but the other thing you discover at the end of this, and this, cause, and this is also really important for interviewing, um, uh, for jobs, but the thing you, you discover is that person uh, after you leave them is going to say, you know, Norm, I, they know nothing about me. They've been talk, spending half an hour talking about themselves, but they walk away thinking, you know, Norma's like one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because I care about you. So you think I'm interested. So, and I, I'm, I think in part that's human nature, but you need to, if you can tap into that, you know, it, and it's helped me survive all those situations. It just, you know, just become a good inter interviewer and your interview, you'll sail through the interview. <laughs> it's so true. You know, there's, there's something to be said about being a good listener. And that comes from you ask somebody a question, whether you use the Socratic method or not. But people love to tell you about themselves. And I have found a lot of people in higher positions that are, whether it's an interview or whether it's a meeting in the office, the person on the top usually likes a soundboard to bounce their stuff off of. They really like it when you agree with them all the time, even though that's probably the worst thing you can do. But yeah, that that is a, you know, in the book, you gave an interesting idea about learning how to communicate from waiters. Would you mind maybe sharing, maybe touch touch around the edges there about what you've learned from waiters without giving sure. up too much? Uh, sure. Well, you know, and one of those lessons I learned from my own son, who spent spent his half of his gap year ser servicing in a restaurant, and it's about it, it's about a, a few things like great waiters. Like when you leave a restaurant, really, you want really good food but you also want really good service. And if your waiter makes you feel important, uh, you'll never forget her or him. So, uh, so part of it is communication. And part of the, part of it is uh, there, there's some things the waiter does control and that's their relationship with you. And then there are the things that the waiter doesn't control, which is whether the food is coming out of the kitchen on time. And what we tend to do when things are, are going badly uh, in our lives, put the restaurant aside is we tend to clam up and say, okay, I, I, you know, okay, so it'll be five minutes late. I'll come back in five minutes and deliver Like, a, like bad waiters will disappear because they know the food's not coming. You can't find them. You know, that feeling when you're looking around, like, where's my waiter, where's my food and they're not showing up. And why? Because they're hiding out in the back because the food's not ready. Whereas the great waiters will come out to you and say, you know what? There's been a delay in the kitchen. I'm really sorry. It's going to be another 10 minutes. Uh, let me bring you something, you know, on the house. Uh, it doesn't matter how small it is. And you're, and you're thinking, wow, that's, 
on the house. Fantastic. This is a great waiter. And instead of your food coming in 10 minutes, it comes in six minutes. And you think, wow, even better. Like he, I don't know what my waiter did to make that come out faster, <laughs> but so it's about, um, it's about beating the expect expectations. And, you know, and this, this ties into, and, and what my son, the, le the lesson I learned from my son was he's serving, he's serving in this restaurant and uh, there are four people at the table and, uh, and he knows none of them are going to order dessert. Uh, so he goes, he goes to the kitchen and they have a house special dessert. He brings it out with four spoons uh, in, in the pre, well before COVID days when people weren't worried about sharing a dessert in the middle of the table. And, uh, and, and they all, the, the four, four diners look at him and say, we didn't order this. He said, it's on me. He said, you have, you can't leave this restaurant without trying this dessert. He said, even if you just take a bite, you'll appreciate it. So of course they, they finished it off. Um, the dessert cost him $7 and 50 cents out of his own pocket. Uh, but he, it generated for him about $30 extra in tips. Like they were tipping him 25, 30%. Um, and why? Because they were just so thrilled that he'd done this for them. Forget about whether they wanted it, forget about whether they liked it, but that their waiter brought them a free dessert he was, he was their hero and, and they rewarded him. And, and it, it hadn't clicked in my brain until that moment. Um, so when I, when, when I was sitting down to write the book, um, I was, I was doing a lot of research on perception and reality. Uh, and I loved, and I love to make up words. So I said, okay, there's this beast that it's called plurality. And it, 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 it could, it could have us for lunch. It can eat us the plurality beast. Why? because we, we all live in our own little realities uh, that are created by our perception, but that's our world. It's got nothing, my world's got nothing to do with your, your world except when we cross. So I have this reality, you have your reality. And just getting back to the, you know, promise it in 10 minutes and deliver it in six, you're a hero. Why? Because you've created the perception that you've worked this magic to get them their food early. Uh, but promise it to them in 10 and deliver it in 15. And they're looking at their watches or they left the restaurant or they're never coming back. Uh, even though you couldn't do anything about it, or even if the food, when it comes out in 15 minutes is the best food in the city, you've ruined it for them. So what's happened is your perception is like, you've been standing at that, you know, you've been standing screaming in the kitchen, doing everything for your table. Like you've been advocating for them. They don't know that. That's your reality. So your perception is how hard am I working for my customer? And their perception is you're an idiot waiter and I'm never coming back. So uh, you have to get your head into the other person's plurality. Your reality is irrelevant. Your perception is irrelevant. All that matters is creating a perception for your client that you really care about them. You'll do anything for them. And whatever promise you make, you'll not only keep it, you'll exceed it. And it can be as simple as, and, and this, I put this in the professional sphere, you know, you promise something uh, for tomorrow at 5 p.m. and you deliver it the following morning at 9 a.m. and you spend all night working to get it done. In your book, you're a hero. I worked all night to get that done for them. In their book is, you told me five o'clock yesterday, you've delivered at nine this morning, you failed. Don't tell me about how hard you work. I don't care. I sat up all night stewing over this. So you can see how my perception doesn't matter. All that matters is your reality. And I have to get my communication and my actions have to all dovetail. That's why the greatest successes in business are people who set the bar at whatever level they set it at and always exceed it. Even though it's the same level you know, but it, you know, if I'd set it up here and delivered here, same level, but you're expecting it higher, I fail. You're expecting it lower, I'm a hero. Yeah, you share some great stories in the book that that really underscore the idea of under promise and over deliver. And I, I really, I think a lot of people can read that and understand it. But 
it seems to me the people that can implement it, it may have to happen to them once or twice before they thoroughly understand how powerful it is, before they 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 need to have that sacrifice of, man, I stayed up all night. Aren't I a hero? And the people's like, no, you're not a hero, you know? So I, I but the book is chock full of great, great stories like this. You know, when I originally picked up the book, I was a little intimidated that you were this, this lawyer and you had all this lion's game, you know, all these movies and stuff. Cause I'm not an attorney, but in the beginning of the book, you start off with like, these are universal keys and they are universal keys. They are applicable to your life, regardless of which field you work in. I believe there's knowledge in there that can help people you know, change a little bit here, change a little bit over here and end up changing a lot about themselves by taking time to think about it. And the fact that you've created mythical beasts that are, <laughs> I think are an amazing way to underscore different parts of that book. Did you find that while working in your law firm, that you had to use the plurality beast to deal with other people's egos? It seems like there's a lot of egos in that industry. How did you work around that? It's all about ego. Let's, <laughs> let's face it. Lawyers, are you kidding? But the, the, the one thing you don't know about lawyers uh, is how brittle they are. And, uh, and I've, I've interviewed uh, some clinical psychologists, who, one in particular who's done tests on thousands and thousands and thousands of lawyers. And what you, what you find is that these gladiators who you, you have this view of them going in, into the courtroom and fighting for you and and pretty much getting ready to, uh, you know, to brass knuckle people if they need to need to to uh, uh, to get whatever you know, to, to get whatever they need for their client. But in their personal lives, they're complete pussycats. Like they fall apart. You know, you you go in and uh, tell a lawyer, uh, give a lawyer criticism, and they shatter. And but they the way they show you how they're shattering is they come back and attack you. <laughs> it's their defense mechanism. Right. But they've stopped listening and you've lost your credibility. Uh, so, you know, there. I, 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 and for those of your listeners out there who are in a sort of review position, um, when you normally when you give a review, there's this theory that you have to give a, a, a criticism sandwich. So you wrap whatever the criticism is around two pieces of bread, each of which you've done this really well, you've done that really well. Oh, and by the way, this is what you need to work on in the middle. Well, for lawyers, it's like a triple club sandwich. All right. So your, your layer of criticism has to be surrounded with four pieces of bread. It's got, it's like four or five to one. And if you don't, if you don't, um, if you don't make it four or five to one, they're not listening. Like they've turned off. Why? Because you've rejected them. All they hear is the rejection and they can't take it. So they're actually very uh, much less resilient than the average population. So just remember that next time you go see your lawyer, uh, be careful about criticizing. <laughs> Start by telling them what a great job, even if, even if you, you think they're, they're idiots, tell them what a great job they're doing. And, uh, you know, four times before you say, and have you thought of doing this? I've never heard it put like a sandwich before. That's so beautiful. That's a perfect visual and a great way to remember and a great way to even mm. implement it. I, I really enjoy that. Thank you. It, you know, and it, and it brings about the idea of there was an amazing stat that you had referenced about the amount of lawyers that go to law school who find the fact that they went to law school is not really a, a benefit for their life. That's, that's interesting to think about, isn't it? Well, it's like, you know, it's, it's like other people who pursue things in their lives and discover it's not for them when they get there. So, uh, so it, and it's interesting because one of the things uh, that I've always wondered about is, uh, does law school do that to you? You know, we tend to be way, lawyers tend to be way more analytical uh, than the average population, way more cynical than the average. Like we're trained not to believe anything. So the, but the, the question comes up is, is law school doing that to you or is law school naturally selecting uh, people who fit that criteria and then just make them a little worse? <laughs> Nobody knows the answer. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're not like that, uh, you're going to have trouble. You know, once you get out there, you're going to have trouble functioning in a world where, you know, we're trained not to believe anybody about anything. Yeah, it's. In prove some it. ways, prove it. <laughs> prove it. Let's see if you can prove it. <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of um, you know, you talk about communication and 
and it's a two-way street. I think that the breakdown, not only in courtrooms, but also in relationships, all kinds of relationships, is this idea of communication. And sometimes one person is really strong and they just beat on the other person. Sometimes one person may be sarcastic or cynical, so they're not getting their message across to the other person. That seems like it happens all the time in relationships, be it loving relationships or professional relationships. What's your take on how to be a great communicator? We all think, not actually all is, is a bit extreme, <laughs> but we have, we have this tendency to think that, that the power of our ideas will convince people. And what we're seeing, particularly, you don't have to look further than open your television and watch the news. What we're seeing in, you know, in, in the wor world of global affairs and American politics is nobody's listening. Like they're just talking past each other. Uh, and I think that's a sign, and I don't know whether that, any of that's fixable, but I know in, in our personal relationships, what is fixable is that if you spend more time really listening and less time convincing, uh, you're much more likely to be listened to. So I, I think the most important communication skill is actually listening, not how well you speak, not what kind of great orator you become. You know, th those days are, you know, A, they're fictional and B, they're over. It's like the days of, uh, of Barack Obama getting up and making a speech and turning an entire crowd, or at least, at least we're on hiatus from that right now. Uh, but I think you're, you're far better off listening carefully to what you're hearing and then trying to get, get behind the words to what the feelings are. If you can actually tap into what somebody's feeling, you have a shot at dealing with them. That's, and it's not a guarantee, but particularly in our uh, close relationships and our intimate relationships, you know, if you can, if you can just keep your mouth shut and listen and, you know, then ask the probing questions that come out of what you're hearing or sometimes what you're not hearing, uh, what you'll find is you can break down the walls. And it's only when you've broken down those walls of defense that somebody will be ready to listen to you. So it's, you know, and it sounds really difficult because you know most of us aren't wired to listen we're wired to talk yeah it's you can't thoroughly understand what someone's saying unless you can see what they're feeling and you can't understand what they're feeling unless you thoroughly listen to them and you know i, I as as I, something i've learned doing the podcast and in trying to learn about the people i talk to is that in the beginning we're wired to almost side monologue. Like people talk past each other so much. And it's, it's fascinating to do a thought experiment where you just, just listen. And it's amazing what people will tell you. People will tell you some pretty crazy things. If you're mm -hmm. willing to listen to them, they'll, they'll give you the keys to the kingdom. If you just, if you just take the time to listen to them. That's it. That's it. And, and they appreciate it. So, you know, I learned my greatest lesson from one of my partners I, I was in the managing partner job. I was in my first year and he walked into my office. Uh, he was from a different city, he came into my office. He was on a business trip and he came down, he sat down and started telling me the story about how this other partner in his office, who was more senior to him, was harassing him. I'm, I'm not harassing, harassing, but doing things that were making him insane. And he went and all, as I was listening to him, all I was thinking to myself is I'm going to fail in this job. I have no advice to offer this person. Uh, and so I sat there and I nodded and I felt I showed sympathy for his situation. I did not offer any advice. He left my office and I said, maybe I should be resigning because I can't do this job. He calls me a week later and he said, Norm, I'm just calling to thank you. And I'm thinking to myself, for what? He said, I realized as I was talking to you, that the only person who could solve this problem was me. He said, but you were so expert at getting me to see that. He said, and you were so smart to just let me go. He said that, you know, it didn't happen that day, but the next day I woke up and I, and I knew exactly what I had to do to solve my problem. You couldn't solve my problem, only I could. And uh, 
I hung up the phone, shrugged my shoulders, scratched my head and said, oh, maybe this job is easier than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. It, uh, it, it's weird how communication, even, even that particular situation is almost contagious. Like even though you didn't say anything, now you come to the realization of like, wow, maybe only I can solve my problem or maybe it just it gets back to listening like that. But there, I'm wondering what, you, what are your thoughts on other kinds of communication like that, whether it's just being an active listener or whether it's body language. What Those are pretty impressive ways of communicating as well. Would you say that those play a big part in, in relationships as well? Well, certainly in your listening. If you're only listening for words, Mm. then you're you're behind the eight ball. It's like, yeah, you have to be watching eye movement. You have to be watching facial tics. Aren't, you know, you're, you're paying attention to, to body language. You know, is, is the person speaking in a tone of voice? You know, is, it an, is the person speaking in an aggressive voice or in a passive voice? Or, you know, are they slouched and looking depressed? Or are they, you know, up firm and look, looking like they're ready to fight? Um, uh, you know, which is half of it. The other, the other part, particularly when you're you're looking at disputes between people, mm. uh, you know, the, the the most important lesson I learned is, you know, don't hear the story, walk out of the room, and decide you're going to solve the problem. You know, that's the worst thing you can do. You know, I, I tried that once. I walked into the other person's office, said, "This person just told me this," and you know. And, and, and what I was rushed, you know, what, I, what, what I was met with was this wall of anger saying, well, did you know this, 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 and this? And I think to myself, well, actually, no, I didn't know anything. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was also a reminder that, you know, the, the way to approach a second person um, is to say, listen, I, I hear something happen between you and X. Why don't you tell me about it? Mm. So you get, you know, you get the unvarnished uh, other side of the story because, you know, as we all know, there's A's version, there's B's version, and there's then there's what's actually happened. Again, we're back to plurality again. And what actually happened uh, very often has nothing to do with either version. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about, you know, perception. So, so, so these are skills. Unfortunately, they can't be taught so much as you can be reminded of it and the only way to do it is to practice you know i had one partner who was so skillful uh in these contentious situations he'd come in with a notepad and he'd just take notes while the other person was speaking and i looked at it and i said uh, i could see where they're going well, apart from anything else it allowed him to remember everything they said uh a but b uh more important when he started responding and then the other person uh, taking notes also kept him from interrupting. Mm -hmm. So when he finished, the other person, you know, would do what you normally do, which is, Hey, I didn't say that. I said, you know, and he'd say, listen, I let you speak. I, I didn't interrupt you. You, you spoke for 20 minutes. I didn't interrupt once. Please show me the same courtesy. Like, how do you respond to that? You shut up. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. You know, it reminds me when we talk about experiences and having to go through certain experiences multiple times, it reminds me of your background in martial arts. You know, when you're going to do a new belt or when you're preparing to move up in rank, sometimes you got to do the same kick a hundred times or a thousand times. And every time you do the kick, even though it's, it looks like the same kick, it's the next move. It's a different kick. So every time you repeat something, it's the next move. And even when you're repeating situations in life, it's the next one. Even if it seems the same, you have to repeat it so many times before you finally get to master it, before you finally understand that the next move, even though it seems the same, is a different move. And I, that's, I get a lot of that when I, read take, when I read Take Charge, I can see the experience that's hot in there. And I think that's the point I'm driving at is the experience leads one to a better life. We can be taught, we can listen to so many people, but until we have our own experience, we can't make it our own. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, going back to the karate analogy, um, when just going back to the first kata they teach, like the, they teach you when you're a white belt. Uh, it's funny because my grandson is there learning it right now. 
and uh, and you watch them do it, and they're you know they're they're stumbling through it the same way I stumbled through it. But even when I got my first degree black belt, I was able to do that. They make you perform that first kata. Like you, you you're not getting your black belt until you can perform that first kata to a different level than someone who started. And uh, what I did was at one point in time, I, I went online and I watched these videos of like sixth or seventh degree black belts doing that same kata. And I watched them do, and I'm not, I was already like a second degree black belt. And I looked at them and I said, oh my goodness, like there's a whole new level of performance of this really, these really simple steps by someone who's a master. Uh, which, and the theory being, uh, doesn't matter how basic the task is, if you perform it over and over and over, and you keep learning every time you perform it, you're going to see new things, and you're going to incorporate it into your performance. And what will happen is the way you do it suddenly becomes unique and your own. And in life, I, I think it's the same thing. We're not always going to do the same thing the same way. And what makes us interesting people is that we will do uh, perform the exact same task, but do it in a slightly different way so that somebody looking at it will say, I just learned something. That's really well put. I, I like that. That applies to so many relationships and it applies to life in so many ways. If you're willing to just learn from the person next to you, regardless of who they are. Like there's so much we can learn from each other. In fact, I, I kind of go with the Jungian view sometimes of like, we're a mirror to everybody. And I think you can learn a lot about your life by understanding the anger in other people or understanding the frustration in other people or understanding the love in other people that way. I think that that is a good way to take charge. And it is a good way to, you know, understand that there's more to solving problems than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the things, you know, whereas in my first book was all ever the entire world from Norm's perspective. <laughs> and I figured when I sat down to write, take charge, I figured, you know, people are going to get tired of me. So I went out and I interviewed countless number of professionals and entrepreneurs at various ages and stages uh, with all kinds of different backgrounds, just to see, are there some, you know, what are the commonalities in terms of our success? And one of the one of the people I interviewed, he uh, he he'd gotten off the boat from Jamaica. He was 16 years old when he arrived in Canada, a teenager. Um, uh, he was raised by his grandparents in Jamaica. And I don't know if if you or any of your listeners have flown into one of these Caribbean islands, but you know, as you get close to the airport, you see all these tin shanties, and you wonder how can anybody live in this heat in in a building like that, a tiny little shack like that with a tin roof. And that's where he grew up. And uh, today he is one of Canada's uh, leading African-American entrepreneurs. And he, he even leads a black, what, it, what, what he calls the Black North Initiative, which is to get more people of color in Canadian boardrooms. And, uh, and, and most recently, he's, on the, he's one of the, uh, the hosts on, uh, on the Canadian version of Shark Tank, if you can believe it. So. Uh, so it was funny because I was talking about him last night and, and what, a, a few of the young people in the room say, you know him? Wow, he's a shark. <laughs> um, but I, I look at what he's able, been able to accomplish from the start that he had in life and realize that it, it's about uh, what's motivating you up here. It's, you know, it's not about how much money you started with. It's not about how much education uh, you were able to accumulate, but there's a, there's an inner drive that in some respects can't be taught, but you know, if you want to succeed, you can't, that's, I think that's the point. There's a way to do it. Yeah. You know, on a, on a related side note, I was talking to a child psychologist and they were mentioning to me how pivotal the younger years are in formation. And as we get back to the constitution, all men are created equal, not really, but you know, I'm I'm curious to get your opinion. How much do you think someone's future success ends on the foundation on which they were given as a kid? It's funny you should say that because I was just I was just writing about that the other day, <laughs> uh, and it was a, a, a little little humor column I, uh, <laughs> that I write, and it's a, it's about how I'm not a snob, but everybody else is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. 
And and I start with these parents who insist that their their children have to attend the exact right preschool so that they can get to Harvard or Yale. Because if they miss if you know if they miss that that train at, at age four, that's it. Their their career their lives are over. And you know you kind of wonder, but well, you know how does everybody else manage to succeed, or you know how how did I manage to succeed with that Harvard or Yale education? Oh, like, what a shock. Um, <laughs> So, um, so I, I think what's 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 way more important um, is, and none of people do it, is uh, to figure out what your gifts are, and they're not going to automatically reveal themselves to you. Like you need to do all kinds of experimentation, and it may not be formal education that does it. So, yeah, you know, you, you can you can go to a you can go to a public school. You can, you know, float through it, you know, till high school. You you can even not, you know, not even qualify for college. Doesn't mean you're you're not going to be successful at something in your life. But if you don't continue to test yourself, that's the real issue. You know, do you do you have the determination and the drive to keep trying things until you wake up one day and you find out, wow. I had no idea I was going to be good at this. No, I am never going to run an organization. Well, I did. I am never going to write a book. Uh, you know, I've, I've written five, including including a couple of uh, murder mysteries. I certainly don't have a creative bone in my body. These are all things I used to say about myself. And we're all the the point is we're all walking around that with that that little voice in the back of my head saying you're not good enough. You can't do it. You'll never learn. You're stupid, uh, you know. And if you listen to that voice, you're going to fail. And it doesn't matter how much education you have; you're going to fail. And you know, maybe in your business, it may be in your relationships. You know, there are all different ways you can fail. But uh, but I firmly believe if you leave open the possibility of, you know what, I'm going to keep trying, and 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 as I continue to try, I'm going to find out if I'm having fun doing it. As long as I'm having fun doing it, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to do it more and more and more. And you know, like that cut, of, like that white belt cut, the, the more you do it and the more experience you have to supplement it, the better you're going to get it. Man, that's great advice, Norman. Thank you. That's, <laughs> that's so true. You know, Gee whiz, I, I hope I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that I think people should pick up the book, take charge and decide for themselves. And I think they'll come across understanding not only what we talked a little bit about today, but I, I know a couple of times I, it caused me to think about parts of my life that may not be the same, but were analogous to it. And I was able to apply a lot of the stuff to it. And, you know, I, I want everyone to know that sometimes that voice never goes away, but it's the ability to silence that voice and maybe replace it with the voice of reason that like, yeah, you can, whether you believe you can or whether you believe you can't, either way, you're right. It may not be what you thought, but you can get close to it. But I, um, I'm, we're coming up on the hour mark here, Norm, and I wanted to say thank you very much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. The book is called Take Charge, The Skills That Drive a Professional Success. You have multiple other books. You've even written some fiction books, Murder Mysteries, Ophelia. Was that, was that one I, of them as well? I wrote Ophelia, which is a modern-day Hamlet uh, <laughs> set in Manhattan and Amsterdam and, and, and even Canada. And I've written uh, Odell's Fall, which is a modernized uh, Othello. Othello, the the successful New York lawyer, and uh, how how far can you fall when someone is out to get you? Um, and again, these are things I, I never could have imagined. But if you're interested in checking out those or or anything else, uh, you can go to my website, Norman Bacall, B A C A L. At the hardest part about finding me is spelling my name right. So, uh, like like the actress Lauren Bacall. So Norman Bacall uh, dot com. Uh, or you can find any, you can find take charge on Amazon, uh, probably the easiest way to, to look at, but, uh, start with my website and you, you'll learn all about me. I've even done a Ted talk. Uh, and the, the theme of the Ted talk is become the person you can't imagine. I like it. And, uh, and again, all based on the principles in take charge and, and how you use them to go places in your life, not just your career, but in your life. Uh, that you can't possibly imagine today. And I've, yeah. I've been blessed. So, 
Well, it's nice that you, it's nice to see people give back. And I, again, I just want to talk about the experience. I, I really think that that's kind of what lacking in, not only in law school, maybe, but in all of our education is there's a lot of people who care and teach, but I think that the real juice comes from someone that's done. And now as their vehicle, their container has been filled up and now they can give back a little bit. And I, I think that's what you've done, Norm. I'm, I'm really thankful for your time and, and getting to speak with you. And I think that it's a fantastic book. I'm going to, now I want to check out Ophelia. That, that was Hamlet's girlfriend, wasn't it? That's, that's right. That's right. Did you write it from her perspective? Uh, I'm not going to say any more. Okay. <laughs> now I got to read it. Not, now I'm not going to, not going to say any more. A, a lot of people complain about the title after they finish the book, but, <laughs> uh, but the, the thought I want to plant in your head is why, why did I choose that okay. title? When you're ready. now now it's in here great norm thank you now right. i have to read george it. it's really been my honor to be with you here. i really appreciate your time and um i'm gonna i'll finish this off but if you can hang on for one more second sure. before, we, before we thank you ladies and gentlemen i hope you had a great time taking a moment to hang out with me in the true life podcast i truly appreciate it if you're taking some time to listen to this whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way i truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart additionally i would like to try to inspire everyone the world is a crazy place and if you listen to your heart and you take some chances i really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine i've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, 
a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.